historic shocks to the energy market, record low solar prices, and what to do about Michael Moore and Elon Musk, all of which feature in this month's Solar Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the new episode of the Solar Media Podcast with me, Liam Stoker, and joining me is Andy Colthorpe, live from Japan. Hello, Liam. How are you doing? Not too bad at all, mate. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm okay, thanks. Uh, into the... Uh, it's best not to think about how many weeks, isn't it? Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while anyway, since you know, January's or February, January, February's declaration of the pandemic. Uh, spinning around the world, I guess we're all finding things to entertain ourselves with at home. Uh, yourself, well, yeah, I think we're. Say again. I was just going to say we're like f- kind of five, six weeks into lockdown now, and it's uh, it, it, it's getting a bit tiresome. But yeah. um, I think we're all just kind of persevering, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you've got a new addition in the family, haven't you? So brilliant stuff. I do. Do yeah. currently recording from my newborn's um, uh, changing. Um, table so that's that's an interesting um interesting repurposing of furniture i guess that's the way to do it man it's the way to do it <laughs> yeah. the gig economy i guess uh, yeah 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 well, there's no gigs happening now um so yeah we uh we're all finding ways to amuse ourselves uh you know you've got newborn on the way uh newborn there yourself and then um you know watching increasing amounts of streaming content probably and reading trying to read more than we would normally but probably not managing to uh, yeah so exactly true in my case um i've been watching not only have we just been discussing the <laughs> netflix uh, tiger king uh, which is tremendously entertaining and you know listen to this first and then maybe go check that out if you haven't already uh i've also been punishing myself today uh, watching the new Michael Moore executive produced documentary, Planet of the Humans. Right, go on. Because I've, I've heard about this, but I haven't haven't had yeah. the actual um, bravery to watch it myself. Well, every, most people talking about it are either saying, should I watch it? And someone's answering going, no, you don't need to. Uh, or it's someone saying, you know, I've watched this, so you don't have to. And then explaining some of the major points. Um, right. And it's had some really excoriating uh, takedowns already from mainly from the clean energy professionals and, uh, you know, what I term loosely as scientists, I guess. <laughs> right. um, so it's, yeah, I mean, I don't want to spend too long on this because I think it's already had a lot of publicity as it is. Um, basically, the film is. Uh, and just basically from a disillusioned environmentalist standpoint, uh, discovering that, hey, actually solar panels aren't physically made of sunshine by pixies. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, renewable energy facilities like solar panels and wind turbines don't last forever uh, is one of the big revelations. And, and apparently solar doesn't generate when the sun isn't shining, which, you know, <laughs> who'd have thought that, eh? Yeah, um, I know. It's almost it, as if, yeah. Well, so it's, it's almost as if this stuff hasn't been considered before and hasn't been planned for or mapped out or entirely considered by reams of scientists that and engineers that are tasked with plotting 
the future of the grid together. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's almost like having watched it, I, I almost don't even know where to start. But I would say that it makes a couple of pretty salient, important points, I think, that then get lost. Um, you know, is the the I don't want to say baby gets thrown out of the bathwater. What with you having a newborn there, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, the, the answer seems to be that oh crikey, they're replacing a coal power plant with a solar power and a natural gas plant, and then there's like a gotcha moment that but wait a second, natural gas is also a fossil fuel. It's like everybody knows yeah. that. Like. It's, <laughs> There's no assessment of the actual carbon benefit of, you know, natural a smaller amount of natural gas versus uh, existing coal plants. There's a whole thing about electric cars are polluting because some of them still charge on, well, let's be honest, you know, the majority of them still charge on whatever the grid uh, charges it on, which at the moment is mostly coal in a lot of parts mm. of the world, in particular Michigan, which is Michael Moore's home state. Um, that, you know, there's a, a launch by GM, mm of one of their electric cars there um but to say that you know this uh, this industry that is so much younger you know obviously uh, in so many ways than the fossil fuel industry uh, should have got it all right already is just you know it's just beyond ridiculous and there's no measurement of you know yes it takes coal to to charge but you know relative to the amount of petrol or you know gasoline as you call it in america or diesel to you know, what's the kind of benefit environmentally of that? You know, what's the pollution differences and stuff? Mm. There's no, there's at no point is there any kind of actual electric energy scientist spoken to for it. Um, you know, I mean, I'd say it's an old adage that there seems to be nobody more bitter than, than, than disappointed ex-hippies. Um, and it just feels like that's the case. Now, I'd say that I'm, I'm being probably a bit kinder on it than other people have been because to my mind it does make some good points uh one being that you know uh greenwashing is a potential and real thing um you know sure. you can get on to the the commitment of big energy corporations a bit later on i think you've got some stuff lined up so we can maybe discuss that in a bit more detail there um there's greenwashing and then there's obviously there's unrestrained uh consumption you know and the fact that you shouldn't just keep building energy generation, transmission, distribution facilities just to accommodate increasing, constantly increasing demand. You know, that that in itself is a salient point. But at the same time, my God, the the film just just strips just strips the whole argument of any kind of nuance. Um and I think there's a lot of people been firstly a lot of people in the pro renewable energy side kind of been stripped of, of their hope from what I've seen on on Twitter. Sure. Uh, and on the other other side of things, um, the kind of I don't want to make this a left and right, you know, wing political kind of thing, but basically the, it's given a lot of, uh, pardon the expression, fuel to the people that are very anti-renewables as well. So, well, this is it. I think I think my biggest, and it's not really a, a con, well, it is a concern, I guess, but my biggest problem with the premise of the documentary and obviously i say this without having seen it but a lot of the conclusions that i've seen being repurposed or republished and and countered Mm. what we've got to bear in mind is that this film probably isn't being made for people like me or you or anybody else in the clean energy industry it's not being made for us to to really watch because ultimately we'll, we'll watch it and we'll be 
we'll pick holes in it and we'll we'll debate the uh, the actual areas around it. When this documentary is, reaches its target audience, which is probably a little bit more um, discerning members of the public that might be that might still be on the fence some for some reason because of um, over clean energy or electric vehicles, then this kind of stuff, which obviously offers no, which strips everything of the nuance, like you say, and offers no counter um, to some of these arguments, it can be extraordinarily damaging for people's view on the clean energy transition. And it's a, it's at a time now where the writing is very much on the wall that we cannot continue with the kind of fossil fuel economy that, that we have. And that much is being made very, very clear by um, established scientists. And then films like this can can come out and actually be extraordinarily damaging. And I, I know that the, the premise of the film is to expose a few truths. And like you say, there's a few kind of big gotcha moments, but these things have been considered. It's not like this is any kind of new revelatory information that there are issues with um, the, yeah. the kind of wider proliferation of renewables. But this, this stuff is all old hat. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I mean, this it, it's just so confused. And if you do take it from a political standpoint as well, it, it's so confused and confusing because it seems to intimate that somehow, um, you know, renewable energy funding is some kind of dark right wing conspiracy. Um, when, right. if anything, you could argue that, you know, dark money going into fossil fuels has been exactly that um, over the years. Um but then conversely, I suppose, you could argue that you actually need, you know, there are both right and left-wing people in the world, and you kind of need both in a society, yeah. you know, much, much as many of us would want it one way or the other. Like, you know, and I suppose the fact that, I guess if you could say, the kindest thing you could say about it is that if, you know, the right-wing is taking on renewable energy to its heart as much as the left-wing is, then I guess maybe it's it's actually getting somewhere. Um so there is that, um, you know, maybe it's actually working for it to be adopted by both both ends of the spectrum. But it's it's really it's a really odd situation, and I think it's it's a little bit sad. I mean, I think it, partly it feels like a rush job to actually make the film, but at the same time, uh, a lot of the conclusions it draws, especially on the technology and you know how suitable the technologies are, how efficient the technologies are, they're from about ten years ago, really, you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think as we'll hear a bit later on when we talk about the kind of levelized cost of energy analysis that come from Bloomberg uh, New Energy Finance recently, um, you know, renewable energy is cheaper than other forms of generation and stuff. Um, and, you know, while there will be obviously problems associated with making anything new a mass market thing, um, yeah, I just don't see what the answers it, it, it tries to pose are. Uh, besides possibly advocating for culling of the human race. <laughs> like, I just don't see where else it, it can go with it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, and speaking of which, I guess there's another, I don't know if you could call him a hero, really, but another fallen figure <laughs> from renewable energy enthusiasts is uh, you've been following Elon Musk on uh I don't know why you do yeah, so, yeah, but he's been on Twitter again, hasn't he? Everyone's favourite irresponsible billionaire man-child. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I mean, I, I get why people aren't or are finding it difficult to 
exist under lockdown. I get why people will put um, the economy before lives in in the sense, but it's very very clear here for well, in my opinion at least, that under the situations of a pandemic, lockdown measures are critical in saving people and saving lives and making sure that um, health services around the world aren't too stressed, that people, um, that we can kind of help stem the, the spread of the virus through these lockdown measures. What I have a massive issue with in terms of Elon Musk is that he purports to be a, a man of science and he, he kind of has this big image of him being this, he's at the forefront of clean energy, he's at the forefront of um, commercialised space travel, he's trying to build these kind of advanced te- technological transport systems for the benefit of mankind. He can't cultivate this image of being a man of science and then start lo- rolling off onto Twitter and saying, free America now, we can, we've got to end these lockdowns, they're ridiculous. Or when he, whether he's on an investor call after, says the Q1s, saying it's a it's a tyranny that that people are locked down and it's, and it's a disgrace. Um, but I don't really want to give too much credence to, to Musk, but that kind of stuff just has to be said. Um, and it, it, it kind of is relevant for us in the industry because, like you say, he is billed as this hero of clean energies for working in or kind of pushing Tesla to the forefront of where it is today. And Tesla is, is, is a great company, but with I always think that what what how difficult must it be to be a PR representative at Tesla these days? You just have to wake up every morning and think, right, well, what, what's Elon done overnight? What's he been yeah. tweeting about? Because this is going to be dangerous Feels rather like than actually like, getting ahead. Probably like something a bit like being a, a press uh, person at the White House at the moment, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe, maybe they can job share. But I mean, to just to conclude this opening segment, I, I'm, I just really I've been racked with you know this whole Elon Musk thing, this whole Michael Moore executive produced movie. Michael Moore didn't direct it, by the way, or write it, but he's the executive producer. Uh, it's kind of really led me to question myself, Liam, and and I've got to ask, are we the bad guys, Liam? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe we are. Maybe we are just pawns in a right wing conspiracy to rid the world of fossil fuels and replace it with clean energy. I don't don't know. I I mean, I thought until about an hour ago, I thought it was a left-wing conspiracy. And now (laughs) this is it. Maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is just evidence of how far the clean energy economy has come that renewables are now not the left-wing conspiracy to rid the world of, of established economies and to spread um, discontent and things like that. As has been the past, but, it's got to be a sign of the progress of the industry that we're now considered a right-wing conspiracy. Has to be. Yeah, or even that you know one of those situations where you get called too right-wing by the left-wing and too left-wing by the right-wing. <laughs> yeah. Which means I think yeah, you're mate, getting noticed, I guess. Finally, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, speaking of, I mean, if we can kind of move it, move this discussion on a bit because I think it is relevant uh-huh. around COVID. And we, we don't really want to dwell too much on the pandemic, but one of the things that we've taken or the, the kind of um, editorial line that we're, we're really looking to pursue now is what happens after COVID and what the lasting effects are going to be, because undoubtedly there's going to be some significant impacts. Um, the International Energy Agency's um, Global Energy Review Report, um, which, which recently came out, 
is really, really quite blunt about those um, economic impacts and and the kind of um, contribution to the, the energy sector. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about so the IEA now now I'm saying that this is this represents the uh, absolutely historic shock for the energy system, and there's some really really punchy lines in the in the report. They're talking about. Um, this being the, the the biggest impact on the on the um, energy sector um, since World War Two, um, the the actual impact so far is kind of six to seven times greater than the financial crash in in two thousand and eight. So that should give some kind of more contemporary comparison there. Um, and yeah. in terms of if you can strip out power, that's it's the biggest reduction in power demand since the Great Depression in the nineteen thirties. So almost a hundred years have gone past, and we haven't seen anything like this. Right. Okay. So, so what you're talking about really is that the basically the, the kind of flatlining of of demand, really. I suppose you could call it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the IEA report is very, very. So they they've kind of used the last hundred days worth of data from um, economies looking at energy demand and things like that. And obviously, as lockdown measures have been put into place industry has has really struggled you've had factories shuttered and um, economy shut or all but shutting down mm-hmm. um so that has already uh, created a 3.8 percent collapse in energy demand and the iea are forecasting that this will be about six percent before the year's end so that's clearly significant um modeling has shown that countries that have a full lockdown are um obviously um, suffer more significant declines. So that they say that those, if you're in a full lockdown measure, it's roughly about 20% of demand mm. um, will collapse. And this is for energy, not power, just the stress at, at this time. But um, for each additional month that uh, that a full lockdown measure is is put into place, your your kind of energy demand drops a further 1.5%. So there's obviously a uh, kind of collateral risk here of, of further damage to the economy, and um, the longer this goes on. Okay. Power, uh, power demand. Yeah. yeah go on, on, sorry. Oh, after so you. power. De- <laughs> power demand comes in at um, having fallen by about five percent, or that's that's the forecast by the end of the year that five percent of power demand worldwide will fall. Um, okay. Funnily enough, this is creating something of a of a beneficial scenario for renewables because obviously as power demand collapses the the kind of the supply and the market forces around the supply of power change slightly so what is what's actually happening or what with the IEA forecasting to happen is that courtesy of um lower operational expenditure for renewables and the um priority dispatch um in in certain markets means that you're likely to see something to the tune of um, renewables contributing around 40% total power demand by the end of the year. Okay. That's quite a significant chunk. Um, not only that, it's, it's renewables wrestled, it's wrestled the lead from coal towards uh, in last year. It's now, as a result of the pandemic, extending its lead over, over coal. And it's they, the forecast that, uh, that renewables will be about six percentage points ahead of coal by the end of the year. So that's, if not create not if not like creating this this situation where renewables can benefit, then it's it's certainly um, extenuating the energy transition towards clean power. Now, 
obviously there's going to be a massive a significant rebound here once um, economies open back up and industry returns and, and that demand um, and, and what kind of that demand comes back onto the system. Mm-hmm. But this to for the for the renewable sector to be contributing forty percent of worldwide power demand is significant. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the UK, I think there was a, um, I think the UK's done eight eight days in a row without coal or something like that. Um, eighteen. So that it, it set the new record. It set, set the record yeah. at eighteen, and at the so we're recording this on Friday the first of May. I actually believe it's still going on. So we we're up to like nineteen twenty days now without any kind of coal generation on the grid. So since so yeah. Well, just in terms of the actual power demand, the, what what we're now seeing is your standard working day, Monday to Friday, is mm-hmm. resembling the power demand patterns and the power consumption is now more closely resembling a Sunday afternoon or, or a Sunday during the kind of pre-COVID. So that should give you some kind of comparison for where the energy demand is at um, at the moment. So people are eating Sunday Sunday roast dinners and going to church again. Every day, every day. There's, there's literally nothing else to do. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess that means that, broadly speaking, that means that people are at home during the day, so there isn't the the morning peak when, you know, people would rush to make themselves breakfast, then they leave the house, and then, you know, then the power would go on at their offices. You know, um, during the afternoon, you can have a lot more solar covering because, there is, yeah, the demand isn't peaking so much because people are just in their houses um and the yeah i mean i suppose the the decline obviously decline in economic ta- activity isn't a great thing in and of itself but it does kind of uh pinpoint sort of the way that renewables can can gradually uh well not even that gradually i guess take the bigger share over um yeah i mean back over over fossil fuels i guess yeah yeah exactly and i think um the, taking the IEA report in isolation is, is significant enough, but when it's actually used to give further context to other reports that we've seen come out recently, um, not just around energy demand, but, power, but around power prices, this is where some of the longer term effects are going to be really um, interesting to watch and, and to see play out, but aren't as, or don't make for as good reading as, as, as the IEA report does for renewables. Um, we're okay. seeing so obviously as as the kind of market forces work and you're seeing the this, this collapse in power demand, but the the maintenance or the maintenance of of supply, obviously that the power price wholesale power price um, drops. So um, Ibdrola multinational utility was um, published its Q1 report this week. In its native market in Spain, it's seen its wholesale power price collapse by about thirty seven percent. That is absolutely significant for a business whose job is to produce and then sell power. Um, other kind of asset owners in the space have, have reported similar. So um, the Renewables Investment Group or TRIG as they're otherwise kind of referred to, um, they own a lot of renewable assets throughout Europe, wind, soda and, and, and a few other bits, um, some battery storage as well. Um, they're, they're forecasting for a very similar reduction in power price. Um, that kind of reduction is kind of front loaded towards twenty um, 
this year, 2021, perhaps even into 2022, before a slight recovery into 2025. Um, Aurora Energy Research also released a report um, recently, which which forecasts the same thing, that out, out, it may take something like five years for power prices to, to recover to where they once were. Um, now, this comes into, into play for a lot of these asset owners because whereas they're established built assets, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the time are backed by subsidies so trig for instance have they derive something like 75 percent of their power of their um, revenue from subsidies so the impact of that is or, or of the wholesale power price collapse is a little bit um they're they're somewhat insulated from it because obviously they have a huge revenue uh, subsidy based revenue stream what that could mean for subsidy free renewables however is um up for debate i'd say because if you are suddenly generating, if 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 the main ins, if the main revenue, if your main revenue source collapses by thirty to forty percent, even if it's for six to twelve months, that's really really damaging for for a company's prospects. So you look, you could foresee this, not necessarily a collapse in subsidy for your renewable business models, but certainly a revision of what could be built moving forward. Certainly in the in the immediate future, but also what might happen kind of further down the stream. Okay. And yeah, if we can just uh, talk a, a little bit about the downstream, I guess, um, some of the things I've been looking at um, on the COVID impacts. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, you know, one obvious thing is that the plunging price of oil um, has been very widely reported. Um, yes. Now, yeah. obviously oil is used not so much for electricity generation, actually. Um, it's no. you know, generally more the transport sector. However, it is used in diesel, um, which is one of the biggest um, drivers of uh, one of the biggest drivers for off-grid solar and storage, um, or even large grid-connected solar and storage with backup. Um, that's commercial and industrial installations generally. Um, is diesel replacement? So in some of the markets, you might well see, in the short term at least, um, I think the actual business case for solar and storage, um, you know, on some of these large industrial sites, uh, or even medium to large industrial sites, let's say, um, you know, in the few megawatt range, uh, rather than dozens of megawatt range, um, is actually going to be a little bit trickier, um, a little bit of a harder sell in the short term. Um, That said... Uh, although we hear a lot that oil prices probably won't ever rebound to you know the real historic highs we've seen, um, there is likely to still be a volatility in that. Um, and you know, whereas with the trajectory of solar and storage pricing, um, that only seems to go one way, and the pricing, you know, the costs just seem to go down. Um, so that's yeah, that's going to be a really interesting trend, I think. You know. Um, mm not too blase a way to look at, at something like this but i mean i guess on the point of the, the subsidy free stuff as well is that you know to some extent this is why we need some of these um, big targets actually for deploying renewable energy um and targets for deploying uh, energy storage and so on you know um because that gives people a longer term um impetus to actually uh yeah to deploy solar and storage and, and what have you um so i think be- this is it, it kind of cements the the call for 
um, like you say, these targets, because they, they, in what are significantly uncertain times, the fact or that the, any kind of certainty from, from a government perspective that uh, there's, there's long, longer term contracts contracts whether it's for flexibility or for the actual sale of power or generation of power rather um mm. th- they can be hugely significant to renewable developers for sure and you know the grid scale storage stuff still remains competitive actually you know um yeah. it's still cheaper than building transmission lines out um it's still cheaper than you know as we're going to see in a minute for them building out new fossil fuels and so on. But yeah, just to take you through some quick numbers actually after, after my bit of waffle there. So we had, um, we had uh, Julian Jansen, who's a research and analysis manager in energy storage uh, for the research firm IHS market. Um, wrote a blog for us. that's published 16th of April, really good blog. Uh, behind the meter energy storage will be most heavily hit by COVID-19, but the industry growth will be resilient. Um, so Julian's saying that the market continues to grow year on year. Um, well, sorry, that said, 2019 was a bit of a blip. So he had 3.7 gigawatts deployed 2018. Uh, that dropped a little bit by a gigawatt to 2.7 gigawatts in 2019 of grid connected battery storage. Right. Um, and then this year in 2020, it's going to total four gigawatts or 10.9, four gigawatts and 10.9 gigawatt hours. And now that's actually revised down the original forecast by about 19%. So whereas phenomenal growth was uh, expected, it's going to just be big growth, I guess uh, you could say. Um, So the overall market is still growing by 49% based on last year. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, the commercial and industrial segment will probably suffer the most in the coming months, uh, Julian wrote. Um, and also the residential market, um, although we've seen that, you know, the, the, the kind of doomsday prep pull of, uh, <laughs> and, and that isn't just a reference back to Elon, <laughs> again, you know, <laughs> um, I think that, you know, of the residential storage, uh, just basically that people want to be more energy independent in general, um, is, is still pulling people into buying residential energy storage. And that's obviously a good thing. Uh, but at the same time, consumer confidence is dented all around and you know, residential storage is more a consumer product. Uh, apart from buying random stuff off Amazon, I think people aren't buying that much, doing that much shopping at the moment. So so that's going to be tricky. And obviously installers can't really get out to people's houses, whereas the difference is um, just skipping on slightly from... Uh, so yeah, I do recommend people read that blog from Julian. It's a great blog. Um, but also I was speaking today with John Zaharancic, who is the Chief Commercial Officer at Fluence. So Fluence being the technology provider on grid scale energy storage, uh, formed as a joint venture between AES and Siemens. So it's big, big power project developer and big engineering company. Um, yeah, providing uh, lithium ion battery systems. Um, and basically they've got, uh, in in about thirteen countries around the world, they've got seventy two projects. Um, and John was telling me, and this is a story that will be written up for the site uh, in the next uh, couple of days. Uh, they only actually out of their whole portfolio of projects have two or three sites. Uh, where John said, for various reasons, the owner of the project has decided to completely shut down. Um, in you know, so there are other delays that are impacting the site. Sure. And, you know, while 
Um, John Zaharanchit said that, you know, very fortunately, they've not had anyone working on sites who's actually been struck by COVID-19, which I guess maybe would give you a whole different question, really, I suppose. Mm. Um, at the same time, the really important piece of this is that mostly utility scale energy storage is considered to be part of critical uh, infrastructure development. So a lot of governments around the world are basically saying that, you know, this is stuff that needs to happen. Yeah. Um, and slowing it down doesn't really serve in, in anyone's benefit, um, economically or otherwise. Um, and so, yeah, so according to Fluence, they've had to make quite a few adjustments that have caused some delays, um, you know, more distancing. Um, it's a bit more difficult to have meeting. Obviously, meetings on site have to be held at a certain amount of distance. Um, all the office staff are working remotely where they can. And maintenance unless it needs to be and part of the great thing about energy storage technology is that a lot of it can be monitored and maintained uh, remotely right um so yeah. that's another advantage of our wonderful technology that we're working with michael moore eat that um <laughs> but at the same time yeah it, it means that you know there is um according to fluence they are still able to keep working and uh, John Zaharanchi said pretty much all of their projects, bar a couple out, out of the whole 73, um, are still going ahead. And just this week also, we've had um, a release in from Zola Electric, who um, readers might know uh, to have been known previously as Off-Grid Electric. So they're yeah, basically electrifying rural communities and, and kind of edge of grid communities, uh, mainly in Africa. I mean, I don't think they're limited to Africa, but I think a lot of their work is in Africa. Um, so they have already just last week received essential service status in Rwanda um, and in Nigeria. Um, and they're also working with governments and partners in, in other parts of Africa uh, to achieve that similar status. So, you know, they've already got over a million uh, customers on that continent um, provided with lithium ion battery and solar electric systems. So this is, you know, something, a bit more sophisticated technology than people might think provided a very affordable, um, you know, through various affordable means. Um, and, yeah, it's really good to see that um, similarly Italy, um, yeah, but I mean, I guess parts of Germany are already coming back online routinely anyway. Uh, yeah. But we see in California, other places, lots of parts of the world actually ruling that energy storage projects are can be deemed as essential work. Uh, the energy transition never sleeps. Um, and so, yeah, really glad to see that work is still carrying on in that area. Yeah, I think we, we've, we've seen a lot of, or we're starting to hear a lot of reports about um, solar developments coming back on stream. We, we've written quite extensively about um, Spain returning to work. And there's, there's now multiple developers that are now back on site. Um, some of the stuff around contingency measures around COVID is quite interesting. So we're talking about... Um, Whereas you might have hundreds of people on site working together in clusters to build these solar farms, there are now much smaller teams of kind of two to four people working. Um, and then you've got like shift patterns rolling in and out of the site. No one's staying on site for too long to, to reduce their um, exposure or potential exposure. So it's just about really this um, dealing with the situation and, and finding a way of working around it, which is actually really quite interesting. Um, and this is something that we're going to cover um, extensively in the next issue of um, PBT Power, which which goes to press in the middle of May. So um, definitely look out for that. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, looking forward to, to get to getting that finished. Uh, not getting that finished. I mean, to getting that out there for people to read. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to getting it finished. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting it, getting it finished. I think it's another really, it's a really cool aspect of uh, of you know large scale solar and large scale battery projects that they can be finished in so much shorter times than comparable projects of. Uh, you know, fossil fuels and, and nuclear can take decades just to get insurance, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's another thing that I think probably the blinkered documentary makers of this world might want to. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, like, the simplicity of putting a solar farm together over the first few years of solar's existence, when I think this Michael Moore movie actually took most of the, the facts in it from, um actually just meant that you can keep scaling that up and and now you can build much bigger solar farms that are way more efficient than anything they even refer to in that movie uh much quicker you know so yeah long long may that continue and um let's hope covid19 doesn't continue that much longer well very much on that note um we're going to take a short break but when we return um more food for thought for michael moore on uh, renewables and especially pricing Aside from his podcasts, Soda Media is perhaps best known for its industry-leading trade titles such as PV Tech, Energy Storage News and Current. Subscribe to our daily newsletters today to receive industry insights and analysis straight to your inbox. And welcome back to the Soda Media podcast. Um, Andy, we were just talking before the break about um, what we've got coming up. Um, definitely PV Tech Power, uh, Volume 23, very much on the horizon. Um, that's should be out um, middle of the month. So we're looking at kind of 15th, 16th, 17th of May. Um, that, that will start hitting people's emails. Um, cover feature very much focusing around um, COVID, but trying to be a bit more helpful for the industry um, in terms of plotting the course for for its recovery and, and, the, and the role that um, solar and indeed energy storage can play in the um, economic recovery post-pandemic but um, as ever the, the the magazine looks absolutely jam-packed full of um, content insight analysis kind of as you come to expect yeah cool yeah and no, I'm looking forward to putting some of that together yeah storage and smart power our, our little section of that that's you know from energy storage news um, it's going to have some interesting stuff in it a bit on blockchain because you have to these days uh, there's a little bit on artificial intelligence because why not? Um, and yeah, we'll be looking at system, system construction um, for energy storage um, for systems, right? For, for want of a, a less clumsy way of putting it. Um, <laughs> really, really interesting stuff to look out for. And uh, you know what? I think we should probably just give a plug to because he's been working so tirelessly on it. Um, the COVID-19 uh, tracker. Uh, that's been running on PV Tech actually, and I know yeah. you've done a little bit of that as well. But poor Jose Rocco Martin, our intrepid reporter, um, has—I can't imagine the almost slavishly at his keyboard, um, yeah. beavering away, covering the covering the ins and outs of it. So yeah, massive, yeah. massive testament to that work. Not even just the writing of it, is it? It's just the having to read all that bloody COVID stuff all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. It kind of is really, you know, it's it's. I'm not. Gonna, it's not as if we're people workers on the front line. Obviously, you know, clearly yeah. those kinds of 
are doing so much more but even just the fatigue of reading about this stuff all the time is is quite quite worrying so hats mm. off to Isaiah on that he's doing a really stand-up job um and you know you guys all, all listening to this could get your latest information uh from the website uh that way and he's he's reading a lot of it so that i guess you don't have to so but that's really <laughs> yeah yeah um, i think um yeah go on andy oh i was just going to move straight on to the digital summits but is there anything else on that no, that was exactly what I was going to do. Um, a little bit of an announcement from um, our publisher, Sony Media. Um, as you would have kind of expected, the, our kind of range of events are uh, under hiatus at the moment. I think it's fair to say, considering the pandemic. So we have um, we're taking the events straight to your home. Um, we've la- now launched a series of digital summits, which comprise. Um, a load of resource and some some really top level speakers delivering um, the, your kind of usual panel sessions, fireside chats, um, interviews um, and presentations, but from the comfort and safety of your own home. So you can see there's a list of, um, of digital events um, at the solarenergyevents.com website. Um, but we're starting very much, Andy, in your domain with um, the Digital Storage Summit, which um, I believe gets underway um, on the 11th of May. That's right, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about this, but I guess by the time we come to record our next monthly podcast, all of them will have been. So, you know, this isn't to detract from the other <laughs> events in the series. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the Energy Storage Digital Series kicks us off. Uh, it's from the 11th to the 15th of May. Um, it's got three, broadly speaking, three topics. Uh, one of them is kind of uh, making money from energy storage. Uh, another one is the value of safe energy storage systems. And the other one is beyond lithium ion, which is kind of a bit provocative, really, because I think lithium ions can be around for a long time. Uh, but yep. it's kind of a catchy way of looking at kind of advanced technologies and, and technological advances, really. So, there's a really a sterling lineup of speakers uh, from the world of finance, uh, from Europe and from the the US. Um, yeah, it really is some some good stuff in there, and yeah, really looking forward to taking part in that. Uh, there's a little bit of COVID chat in there, um, some real uh, presentation highlights coming from uh, top utilities, um, and yeah, so real mix of industry, academia, utilities. Uh, yeah, very much looking forward to that. Doing it digitally, I believe it's free to sign up, although you can get access to a premium um, package that, that will allow you to um, arrange to meet virtually with other attendees. Um, this is this is what I'm personally most looking forward to, is finding out um, how the networking progresses. Because obviously we, we have this digital networking capability, so we can connect people to whether it's potential customers or, or contacts, just to really exact, providing exactly the same kind of networking that you see at a live event. But given we're now running this digitally, I'm intrigued to see just how many people um, attend with um, your kind of standard business attire at the top and maybe some some sports shorts or some Hawaiian shorts underneath. <laughs> Because <laughs> I've certainly slipped into just wearing shorts and t-shirts at work, which has been fantastic for me. But Pretty yeah, I might put on, I might put, I might put on a shirt for the for the networking. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
me, I'd be, I'd be really curious, to, and I don't know how you're going to find this out necessarily. Uh, I want to know if people will drink as much coffee uh, as they would do <laughs> at a real networking event um, when they're sat at home. And my, my hunch is probably they'll start the week thinking that they'll need to dose up on as much caffeine as they would normally, and probably that will tail off a bit. But yeah, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. Maybe we could yeah. add incorporate incorporate that into the polls. Yeah, how much coffee have you actually drunk this week? Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, but but moving on, um, we spoke before the break about having more um, food for thought for Michael Moore. Um, we can deliver it, but in actual fact, is it's Bloomberg New Energy Finance they're delivering this. Um, new analysis from them out recently shows that um, the levelized cost of, of electricity for renewables and in particular solar. Um, looks like being, or kind of the, the they're teaming it as a as a dramatic collapse or, or dramatic drop rather. Um, solar down to around thirty US dollars per megawatt hour, um, and could break the twenty dollar mark um, within the next decade, which is really really significant, um, a, a continued drop, um, and it's actually enough to make solar and um, and onshore wind the cheapest options for electricity for around two thirds of the world's population. So that is apps a, a really really critical development, um, not just for obviously for the renewable sector, but for the entire the entire green economy. Really, if you think about it from a um, from what that opens up to, whether that's the further electrification of other sectors at a much cheaper price than might have been forecast. I'd also just like to sorry, just like to interrupt you to point out for the benefit of Michael Moore. Last word for Michael Moore. <laughs> right. The analysis we're looking at comes from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, but I think you'll find that Bernie Sanders was also very pro renewable energy, Mister Moore. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> all right. but, so yeah, you know, just lest we be accused of any kind of bias. Um, oh yeah, of course, our, our, our right wing bias. All right, with... <laughs> All right, cool. Okay, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing for me, well, not just for me, for, I don't know if this is fair of me to say, but apparently the battery storage uh, LCOE, levelized cost of electricity, actually fell faster than solar and wind in the last. Uh, it's, it's, on that, solar and wind. It's a marathon, not a sprint, Andy. Come on, mate. Oh, right. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, so. Um, more so providing some more detail for the report some more context um mm-hmm. these kind of the the cheapest possible prices are likely to be found in um australia um china perhaps of no real surprise there um chile and the united arab emirates um the last of which they're the uae um readers of pv tech and kind of avid um avid kind of industry commentators and people that are familiar with it um, will have seen the news from Abu Dhabi this week. Um, the cheapest cheapest ever solar tender um, for the two gigawatt Aldafra project. Um, Abu Dhabi Power Corporation, so the big utility um, in the Emirate, um, came out um, on kind of towards the end of April saying that it had received a record low bid of, um, let me just pull it up. Uh, 1.35 cents per kilowatt hour, which is just astoundingly cheap. Um, to give that some context, the the previous 
Um, previous bidder of the previous record holder for for a low solar tender was of course a Portuguese tender from last year, um, with bids coming in at um, one point six four cents. So we're continuing to just knock off reams of of that price. Obviously, Abu Dhabi is quite a um, choice environment for um, for solar to to be developed in for obvious reasons, but still, that those bids have to come in and people have to formulate those. Um, it's worth noting that. Um, numerous reports locally suggest that the that particular bid originated from a it was a joint bid involving um edf so the french uh, french utility and jinko solar um there's no as of at the time of recording there's no explicit confirmation for that but it but it seems to seems to have been suggested um in, uh, from multiple sources that that those are the, uh, that that is indeed the case um but yeah it's it's just it's one thing to have reams of reports that this is happening and this is the LCUE and this this is what's going to happen, but to actually have it front and center, this is actually happening now, um, is is cause for celebration or has to be. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess in one respect, I think it was, uh, I believe it was you actually that said in one of the previous editions of the podcast that um, a tender getting a, a, a world record low price in itself is not necessarily news because that's the point of a competitive tender, right? It's supposed to drive yeah. down, but, but it's actually just how effectively it has happened. And as you say, I think, you know, as it's 0.0135 cents a kilowatt hour is ridiculous. And and that actually comes in at 44% lower. Um, I think you're right up says Yeah, it does. Right. Yeah. So then the Abu Dhabi NOR project, um, yeah. it was a world record three years ago, um, 44% reduction. And that's, that's a dynamic we've seen in some other kind of tender processes. And what was another, you know, interesting aspect of that is that if you look at, um, for example, France's uh, tenders for solar projects on its island and overseas territories. Yeah. Um, these are much, much smaller projects. They're not two gigawatt projects. There are, there are a few megawatts, you know, maybe the biggest one would be about 25 megawatts um, of solar. And, and even there, I think the successive tenders um, process drive down prices by about 40% at a time, you know. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's an incredible dynamic. And I think we really do need to get this kind of knowledge and this kind of factual information out into the world, I think. I think that's really, really important um, to just keep that conversation about renewables going that, you know, while on the one hand we need it to happen for environmental reasons, we also need it to be made clear that it doesn't necessarily come associated with the kind of, I don't know, the sort of hair shirt agony that, that people imagine that it might entail, you know. Well, there's that kind of, that meme which has done around for years now where it's all well and good us saying, well, okay, we've what what happens if we shift everything from what we we proceed down this this green path and we we undertake this energy transition and and it's all green and and it's all it's all well and good and we the fossil fuel industry if not dies and certainly plays a a far less significant role in it um if it's not for a green purpose and that the the prospect of halting climate change is, is is obviously achieved and and all of that and everything that goes with it, even if it's not from an environmental perspective, 
you now have cast iron evidence that it is that renewables are sign- that are just significantly cheaper than fossil fuel generation. Now, obviously, there's far more cogs in that, whether that's a carbon price or um, cost reductions and, and things like that. But and the, obviously, priority dispatch, like we mentioned before, has a role to play in ensuring that renewables has a offtaker or is the priority offtaker. Um, but surely, delivering a cheaper energy grid or the electricity grid rather, is a, a, a tangible benefit in, in, in of itself. No, definitely, yeah. And I mean, I don't really want to go off too much on kind of the vested interests of the existing order. Now, there is there is basically a thing that, well, hang on, if renewable energy is cheaper and so on, then there's going to be certain people who think to themselves, oh, I'm not going to get as rich as I might have done you know, with the, with the fossil fuel economy going on. And sure. Particularly in America, the the power sector is driven by the utilities, you know, to a, to a larger extent. And I think there's a report that you wrote up a few days ago um, about one of the biggest utilities that was perceived to be dragging its heels a bit in terms of uh, renewable energy um, because the utilities basically continue to get compensated and in some parts of the world actually the more they spend on infrastructure that you know they're, they're covered for it because by regulation they they're allowed to do that um and actually the more they spend the, the more they get paid you know they can the what's called rate basis so uh, it was really interesting to see the report on duke energy I'm sorry to spring this on you because i'm not sure we put it in the running order for the show beforehand but no, it's fine. Duke, duke energy's renewable energy um portfolio plan right um, yes. Out, that necessitates an extra something like uh, 16 gigawatts of, of solar, um, and oh, I don't have the figures in front of me, but also I think um, it's it's um, there's a there's a big thing. So Duke have um, essentially committed to double their renewable energy capacity by 2025. So solar and on uh, solar and wind, and I think hydroelectrics in there as well. If not hydro, then it's definitely biomass. Um, they, right. they they have they have eight gigawatts, but they want they want that to be sixteen gigawatts um, within the next five years. And and to um, facilitate that kind of transition, they're going to need something of I think it's fifteen gigawatts of four, six, or eight hour energy storage um, by twenty thirty. So this is a a major US utility um, really pinning their their colours to the mast of, of where they see their growth coming from. And um, it. it it's it's not just Duke either. I mean, we're seeing um, the BNEF report talks about that, that these cost reductions are being delivered um, principally by um, the pursuit of larger solar installations and larger portfolios, really. So these are kind of achieving cost savings by um, economies of scale, really, with uh, some of these larger players in, in, in the field looking to really drive down this. Um, this price as well. Um, it's interesting seeing um, BP chief exec Bernard Looney comments um, after the um, the firm's Q1s. Now, obviously, they're struggling with the oil price, like we've like we've mentioned. Um, they've had a quite turbulent period, but um, he name checked solar in particular, um, just saying that the kind of the technology's cap- um, ability to um, Deliver significant price, um, significant projects on price and securing contracts at a time when there's a lot of uncertainty around oil, gas, and everything else um, is kind of really catching the eye. Um, obviously, there's a certain amount 
of, I mean, there's probably a certain amount of um, greenwashing in that. Obviously, the chief executive of an oil company holding aloft its soda subsidiary is good, but obviously that's still a, a tiny fraction of of their kind of revenue base, if you will. But it's not just it's not just BP, Ibadrola, um uh, like we mentioned before, they 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 posted a an increase in in net profit in in Q1. Now, obviously, the impacts of of COVID will probably be felt in Q2 and beyond, but still, it, it's worth noting that um, Ibadrola have, have committed billions and billions of euros worth of investment into into the renewable sector, and that's they're they're standing by that. Um, they're, they're not reducing that investment at all in in, in the wake of COVID because they would just see value in it. Um, they're looking to continue to invest, um, and I think they're even accelerating their supply chain procurement um, just to make sure that their supply chains are, remain healthy so that they're not delayed. Um, there's also GALP, which is the um, Iberian utility, as well, another Iberian utility I should mention that I've obviously had to um, had a, have a look at their cost base and their, their, their capex. Um, but again, they're, they're, they're still standing by their renewables commitment purely because if you look at it from a long-term perspective and, and in the interest of shareholders and what and, and what have you then renewables are the the safe the safe bet yeah this is the thing isn't it you know while all around it is kind of uh going to shit um at the same time you know, you've, got, you've got like uh yeah i mean the solar farms will keep producing they will return and actually the year we've had they've some of them have overperformed you know uh, to some extent um, but yeah, I mean the whole the whole greenwashing is it's like you say it's still a really tiny proportion of what companies like BP and Shell are actually doing. Um, like I mean the the uh, Shell financial results that are out this week. You know Shell a couple of weeks ago committed also to net zero. I don't even care what year they said because I don't know. We'll see. Um, but at the same time, their financial results this this time around didn't even mention. Um, any of their their low carbon assets or their performances really so i mean i think it's not probably from our point of view it's not going to be enough to say time will tell which is an old journalistic cliche that we'd love to use um, because actually we haven't got that much time um, in terms of the climate change issue mm. um, and so, yeah we, we really need to see them put their put their heads on the chopping block um, what have you, and 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 see what happens because you know at the moment the people that have invested in them via their pension funds and stuff are losing tons of money, um, which is you know these aren't fat cats we're talking about these are ordinary people you know institutional investors um, through their pensions and and things like that so you know their interest rates and whatever um, so yeah we we kind of need to see the smart the the green energy revolution and the smart energy revolution go up several notches really um and hopefully maybe some of the economic stimulus that comes in post-covid i've already seen the australian renewable energy industry um is talking about you know basically stimuli in in that direction you know there's there's massive calls now in um in the european sector for um obviously there's going to be significant um economic stimulus to support the the recovery but um there there are huge calls for this to to center around um the green economy and supporting renewables and and other clean sectors um it's really really interesting to note that even in the UK um the the suggestion is that um 
the meeting meeting climate targets and, and delivering a, a green transition is, is going to play a central role in any conservative led um conservative led um uh, economic recovery for the uk so it's clearly on the agenda it clearly makes a lot of sense it must make a lot of sense if even the tories in the uk are placing up for consideration and um, given their current attitude to the green crap as one of its uh, prominent members once described it and um, so yeah i mean it, it's easy for us to sit here as and pontificate about the merits of the industry but given what we've seen in the in the iea report and the 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 way that the industry is responding and what we are seeing in from the B the BMEF analysis, it kind of if we're gonna put if we're gonna drag this podcast full circle, it really does make a bit of a mockery of what Planet of the Human suggests. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you know, as a final point, that Bloomberg New Energy Finance um, reporting on the the cost of storage, you know, I spoke briefly uh, with the report's lead author, um, so an analyst called Tiffin Brandley. And he was saying to me that the the scale that the kind of battery storage projects are, are getting is is a real um, you know is a key is a key factor behind the cost reductions. So you're now getting projects benchmarked at 150 dollars per megawatt hour, including uh, charging costs uh, and four hour discharge of batteries. Now that means that they batteries can now beat. Uh, gas peaker plants. So these are the the gas power plants, combined cycle gas uh, turbines um, that may only run, you know, a small portion of their their lifetime. You know, it might be a twenty percent, twenty five percent capacity factor, um, but at the same time, will run during the most in energy intensive parts of the day, uh, and will be the most polluting. You know, and mm. I think we said it on the podcast before, and certainly said it all over the the websites. You know, that's. That's kind of where you need to make the gains in terms of reducing pollution, uh, reducing the cost of energy, and that's just the sort of sort of nuance to the argument that is actually missing um, in a lot of the more popular discussion. Which I mean, I guess to some extent that's understandable, um, but yeah, I think it's you know, I mean, it's both good news on the one hand that that this stuff is actually really happening in the real world, um, but it's also kind of bad news that we as an industry don't seem to be getting that point across so much but yeah so certainly that Bloomberg new energy finance report um, is one of those interesting benchmarks that that kind of looks at the, the the links between all the different parts of the industry as well and so how electric mobility impacts on on batteries and yeah I don't know I mean I think I think we're probably just going off onto a completely different topic here but I've noticed certainly, there's been a lot of commitments towards financing EV infrastructure and EV infrastructure projects yeah. um, that have been announced in the last few weeks, despite that falling cost of oil, which are, you know is a very short-term dynamic, whereas the falling cost of batteries are very long-term dynamic, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think um, if there, if it will be very, very interesting to see what what the impact on um, COVID has on the um, EV manufacturing and. Really, the, the transport manufacturing um, sector in in general. Really, I, I've seen a few reports suggesting that um, I think this is I think this is limited to the UK, um, but that car manufacturing is falling by something like thirty forty percent. Um, now, if 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 you're if you're a car manufacturer and you're having to 
really think about what vehicles you're manufacturing and what vehicles you want you want to manufacture for the next for the next few years at least are they going to be legacy assets with conventional vehicles that you might not be able to sell for much longer or are they going to be electric vehicles which are really cutting through um the and and finding traction so it, it, it'll be interesting obviously there's a lot more um economic factors in that um but it, it it's it's one of these things where it gives us cause for debate i guess which is all we can do on the on an energy related podcast Definitely. But also on a final conciliatory note, I think talking about electric vehicles, there is one thing we definitely agree with Elon Musk about, and that is that electric vehicles are cool. They are cool. Um, Elon is less so, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> <Not enough. laughs> All right. um, on, on that note, um, uh, unless you have anything else to add, Andy, I think we can call it a day. Yeah, I do just want to add, you know, to everyone out there, please do stay safe. Um, We know that obviously this uh, virus that's out there doesn't affect everybody. But I just want to say from personal experience, I've already got uh, friends of friends, family, you know, members and stuff. That's basically four people have already died. And one of them includes a doctor um, that, you know, that's through my circle of, of friends and family. One of them includes a doctor that came out of retirement to, to try and help the NHS mm. in the UK um it's just it's not a matter to be trifled with it will finish this whole situation will be end and better times will definitely come uh for now i think probably it's best to defer to genuine medical experts um and yeah just yeah on on a lighter note i just hope that everyone yeah is is keeping well and yeah we will look forward to better times and 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 thank you again for listening yeah exactly i think just to echo that um just a wish from everyone to to stay safe stay stay healthy and um we look forward to sharing a um an actual networking session rather than any kind of um digital session that that we might be able to put on in in, in the short term but um other than that thank you very much for listening please subscribe continue to engage with with our output in whichever way you can really does um if not help us kind of in in another way it does just boost our egos which is what we need at the moment so that's fantastic (laughs) for us um but um otherwise thank you very much for listening